Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. What has been the impact of Christianity on Western civilization? How did the shock of the cross change the relationship between the weak and the strong? Where might we see Christian theology and dialogue in unexpected places? And why might it be important to reconnect Christian values with Christian stories? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Tom Holland. Tom is an award-winning historian, author and broadcaster, and he co-hosts the popular podcast The Rest is History. His latest work is called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And our title today is, How is the Story of the West Forged by Christian Faith and Values? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Tom Holland, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to have you with us. Tom, your latest book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, which I read a few years ago, tells what you describe as the greatest story ever told, which is how those in the West came to think in the way that we do. Take us back, though. That's not the first book you've written. Take us back to the journey of the books that you've written and kind of tell us the journey about how you came to kind of want to write this project. Well, I mean, ultimately, it goes right the way back to my childhood, where I was raised Anglican. So I I went to church, I went to Sunday school, I had a very keen interest in the biblical stories. But the truth is that I liked the biblical stories in the way that I also liked stories of Greek myths, or stories of King Arthur, or stories of ancient Rome, or whatever, as a kind of repository of glamorous and exciting narratives. And truth be told, I was pretty much on the side of the great empires against the Israelites. I identified much more firmly with Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Pontius Pilate than I did with any of the Israelites. So I feel very guilty about that. And basically, I just found ancient civilizations glamorous, powerful, exciting, thrilling. Um, They kind of stirred me in the way that when I was even younger, dinosaurs had stirred me. And I guess the legacy of that was that when I came to write books of popular history aimed at a general readership, I focused on the ancient classical civilization. So I wrote a book about the fall of the Roman Republic. I wrote a book about the Persian invasions of Greece. But I found the process of trying to get into the mind, say, of Caesar, who, according to Plutarch, slaughtered a million Gauls and enslaved another and seems to have had absolutely no moral qualms about this whatsoever. Or Leonidas, the Spartan king who dies at Thermopylae, but ruled a state that was dependent on enslaved neighbours and, again, had no moral qualms about that at all, that I felt this kind of disjunction between my moral frameworks and their moral frameworks. And more than that, that even the use of English to write about pre-Christian worlds. So whether I was using words like secular or religion or even homosexuality, that all of these were freighted with anachronism. So it was as though I would have talked about Caesar conquering France. The sense was there, but there was, you know, it would have felt anachronistic. I just felt increasingly that when I was looking at the pre-Christian world, I was looking through a glass darkly. And what came to ask myself, well, what is it that changed? 
And inherent in the fact that I'm using the word pre-Christian to describe Greece and Rome is the fact that I came to think that it was Christianity. And so I wrote Dominion basically to stress test a thesis that at times has seemed to me so self-evident that I worried whether it was tautologous and at other times has come to seem kind of incredibly countercultural and all kinds of, of my friends have kind of expressed, you know, doubt, sometimes horror at the idea that essentially the modern West, even though it may seem post-Christian, is in its absolute fundamentals Christian through and through and that it is that process that separates us from the civilizations that existed before the time of Jesus. So that's essentially the how I came to write Dominion. So you talk about that key claim that you're making, this massive kind of dividing or key moment in history from pre-Christian to Christian civilization. And one of the things you do in the book is kind of suggest that Christianity's enduring impact is seen everywhere in the West. It transformed the ideas of antiquity. It became widespread. You suggest that it's still there, even though belief itself has kind of gone on the retreat. Take us through your thesis. Well, in almost every way. So, so the lack of belief, for instance is a very Christian one. It's not something that really would have made any great sense to the Greeks and the Romans. The relationship of the Greeks to their gods was not founded in the question of whether they believed in them or not. It was whether they were paying them the cultic dues that was their responsibility to pay. So the idea of belief as a cultural marker, it seems to me, is a very Christian one. And therefore, by extension, when people cease to believe in gods, in the Christian context, they retain a Christian residue. And I would go further and say that there's a sense in which atheism is a logical endpoint of a certain trend within Christianity. Because if you listen to some of the more evangelical atheists, and I use the word advisedly, if you think of Richard Dawkins or someone like that, he is committed to the idea that if you banish superstition, then you will become a better person. Uh, you will no longer be in darkness, you will come to walk in light. And this is an ideal that obviously you can trace back to the Enlightenment, but you can also trace it back to the Reformation, because the Reformation was all about the conviction that if you topple idols, and if you banish superstition, and if you bring people who have darkness into light, then they will be better people. But that in turn, of course, is an inheritance of primal Christianity. It's an understanding that missionaries who are going to Anglo-Saxon England or to early medieval Saxony or Scandinavia, that they are taking that assumption as well, which is why they are toppling idols, chopping down trees that are sacred to gods, all that kind of thing. And that in turn is an inheritance from texts that are pre-Christian, namely the prophetic books of Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever, who are committed to the idea that the idols of the Egyptians or the Babylonians are merely stock or stone. And that, again, if you smash them, people who walk in darkness will be brought into light. The idea that by banishing superstition, you come into light, which is foundational for the modern atheist movement. This is not culturally neutral. And this, I guess, is my core argument, that so many things that get traced back to the Enlightenment by people who would consider that they've emancipated themselves from Christianity. Actually, the Enlightenment is just a way stop on a much, much longer story that goes back to Christian beginnings and even back to the text of the Hebrew Bible. We'll come back to the contemporary application of that point later, Tom, if we can. But can we go back right to the beginnings of Christianity and to where you start and end your book, which is with references to the crucifixion? You write very powerfully on that and this key Christian value, which you identify as the choice of the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
Why did you hone in on that particular aspect of the Christian faith? And where do you see that theme sort of progressing? I mentioned at the start of the interview that I was very much on the side of Pontius Pilate <laughs> rather than Jesus, you know, because Pontius Pilate has the glamour, he has the purple, he has the eagles, he has, you know, all that kind of thing, whereas Jesus is just the scruff. But I came to real, of course, you know, you grow up, you abandon childish things. I came to realise the foundations on which Roman power lay. And this was brought home very viscerally to me in 2016, when I'd already, I'd written probably two, two or three chapters, I should think, of Dominion. And I went to northern Iraq to make a documentary for Channel 4 about why ISIS were ideologically committed to wiping out the Yazidis, who are uh, people who are condemned by ISIS as not merely infidels, but as devil worshippers. And we visited uh, Sinjar, which was a major centre of Yazidi habitation. And this was a town in which notoriously uh, Yazidi women had been rounded up and either enslaved or killed. But also this was a place where Yazidi men had been crucified. To be in a place where crucifixion had served the occupiers of a town as it had served the Romans, as an emblem of their power, as an emblem of their right to put to death those who opposed them, was incredibly unsettling because it opened up for me this kind of existential abyss. It rubbed my nose in the reality of a world in which the cross does not have what it has for us, whether you're Christian or not. If you're lying injured and, and an ambulance comes up and there's a cross on it, a red cross, you know that's good. If the cross is an emblem of the right of the powerful to put to death the weak, then that plunges you into an entirely different moral universe. So I came back from Iraq having had that experience and rewrote my introduction to absolutely focus on the reality of what crucifixion was, what it had meant for the Romans, and what it comes to mean for Christians, and to try and emphasise the full scale of the revolution of that change in opinion as to what crucifixion meant. What role do you think the Apostle Paul had within that? The Gospels spend a lot of time talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It always strikes me that in movie terms, they go into slow motion, don't they, as, as the cross looms into view. But then Paul, particularly, I'm thinking in 1 Corinthians, where he sort of says, you know, I came among you and I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. What's the contribution of Paul, do you think, to that dominant narrative of the cross and that reframing it, not as a place of shame, but a place of glory, a thing, something to boast in? Well, he says it's a stumbling block for the Jews, for the Judeans, which it absolutely is, and kind of folly for the Gentiles, for the Greeks and the Romans. So Paul absolutely understands the weirdness of the conclusion he's come to that this man who has suffered the most humiliating and painful of deaths is in some way perhaps a part of the one God. And it seems to me that in his letters he is kind of wrestling with the implications of this. I mean, they're not statements of thought through theology. This is a man wrestling with his own uncertainties and doubts about the implications of it. And he has clearly founded his entire life on the conviction that he's right about this. But the way that he talks about Jesus as crucified, as a crucified Messiah, suggests that he is absolutely aware of how shocking this is likely to seem to people he's preaching it. And that the, the nature of the shock, of course, is the point. That's everything that is kind of animating Paul. But he does understand that people are going to be kind of revolted, repelled, appalled by the very idea of it. It seems when you read early Christian writers, 
that for a long time they are all wrestling with this. They're all kind of acknowledging that this is a, a kind of terrible thing. <laughs> this man who is increasingly kind of being acknowledged as a god was crucified. And one of the manifestations of that, it seems to me, that even after Constantine converts and the Roman Empire becomes um, increasingly Christian, there remains a reluctance to portray Jesus on the cross. And when you start to get portrayed, so there's, um, there's a famous portrayal of him early 5th century on an ivory box that's in the British Museum now. And he's shown on nailed to the cross, but he looks completely serene and he's very, very buff. I mean, he basically he looks like an athlete. He's an Olympic athlete. The idea that you might show what it actually would be, the blood dripping down, the pain. I mean, this is a much later thing. It's really not until the year 1000, and, and specifically in the West, rather than in the, um, the Byzantine Empire, the world of orthodoxy, that you get Jesus dead, shown dead on a cross. And then at, over the course of the Middle Ages, of course, you get increasing emphasis on the sufferings of Christ on the cross, whether that's in the liturgies, personal devotion or in the art. And one of the consequences of that in turn, I think, is that increasingly people in the West become desensitized to what the cross actually means. So when you look at a cross, you see a symbol of Christianity. You don't see an instrument of torture. Going to Sinjar affected me so powerfully. It jolted me back into a state of mind where I was absolutely brought up short against what crucifixion would mean. You describe a, a journey there, Tom, that's affected with the church really taking hundreds of years to kind of come to terms with the full reality of the crucifixion as an event and as a place of torture. Therefore, in those incidents, say between the years of Christ's death and 1000 AD, was the church struggling to navigate, therefore, the reality of prioritising the weak over the strong, particularly after the conversion of Constantine? Does that mean that value became harder to embed in the life of civilization? I think it's such a countercultural idea and it imposes such strains on people. And of course, it also generates all kinds of ambivalences and paradoxes, because as Nietzsche, the most, I think, the most intellectually brilliant and properly post-Christian of atheists points out, there is a kind of power in the lording of powerlessness. I mean, he kind of describes it as a hatred of the weak and the poor for the strong and the glorious. But the idea that by subverting traditional the traditional standards the Romans had upheld. It's not purely as though you were thereby enshrining the weak, because those who are doing it come to have power themselves. And so I think one of the reasons why Constantine decides to go with Christianity was that actually bishops were men of power. They were meant to be respected by the standards of the age. They had a lot of patrons. The bishops are handing out charity to widows, orphans, people in prison, the sick. But that is giving them power. And essentially, the Christian church, by the time that Constantine converts, has become this huge cuckoo in the Roman nest. It's a welfare state that owes nothing to traditional structures of Roman power. And that gives it power in itself. And that is something that the church has consistently wrestled with, that if it becomes institutionalized, does it therefore become powerful? And does it therefore risk betraying Christ's teaching that his kingdom is not of this world? And we're recording this podcast just days before the king's coronation in Westminster Abbey, in which that tension will be fairly clearly embodied as well, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Because the coronation ordo, going right the way back to Edgar's coronation, where Edgar comes into Bath Abbey, the coronation is happening in Bath because it's a great Roman city. 
Edgar is claiming the Roman title of Imperator, Emperor, but he comes into the church, into the abbey, and he takes his crown off and lays it on the altar, and then he prostrates himself before the altar. And Dunstan, the great archbishop who is presiding over these coronation rituals, it said bursts into tears of joy at the spectacle of this display of humility. And the same paradox is there in the coronation ritual that's going to see Charles crowned as king, that he is offering himself as a servant. You know, he will take oaths of service and then he'll go and sit on a throne. It absolutely enshrines these paradoxes. You made a powerful case earlier, Tom, for saying that even something like evangelical atheism is itself rooted in a worldview that goes all the way back to uh, the foundations of Christianity and indeed the Hebrew Bible before then. And one of the themes of your book is that the influence of Christianity is so profound that it becomes hidden. Do you want to give us perhaps one or two more examples of where I know you write about human rights, the importance of conscience, where effectively kind of Christianity kind of sets the terms for the debate, really, however that debate is then sort of played out? I can't think of any of the kind of flashpoints in what people call the culture wars at the moment that are not essentially intra-Christian debates about what aspects of Christian doctrine you should emphasise. We are living through a great roiling of the Christian world that is comparable to the Reformation and that the 60s are a period of convulsion comparable to the 1520s. The difference is that Whereas in the in the 16th century, the debate was couched in very overtly theological terms. Everyone accepted that they were Christian. It was just a question of what the proper definition of Christianity should be. Since the 60s, one side of the debate has come to deny that it is Christian. And Christian doctrines, Christian beliefs have come to be a vibe. And therefore, it's possible for people to assume that, you know, they are the kind of the moral equivalent of the haze of a jostic, that they don't really come from texts, from liturgies, from institutions that large numbers of people have overtly come to, to repudiate. So to give the classic example in America, abortion, absolute flashpoint for, for Catholics and for Christians generally. The idea that every life is sacred to God is a fundamental Christian belief. That is clearly a very, very Christian idea. But at the same time, the idea that a woman's body is her own, that men should not tell, should not force themselves on women and decree how women should, what they should do with their own bodies. This is also a very fundamental Christian idea. It's there in Paul. It's two rival ways of interpreting the Christian legacy going head to head with each other. Tom, one of the things you argue in the book is that Christianity has had an enduring significance despite the retreat of belief do you think where we are in this moment in history you said the 60s are like the 1520s where we are now in 2023 do you think this influence of christianity is set to continue into the future or have we reached a stage where those values themselves will start to decline I don't think the values will because I think they're so deeply rooted and I think the evidence for that is how we today think about the one consistent effort to repudiate not just institutional Christianity, but doctrinal Christianity. So the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution targeted institutional Christianity, but it didn't target the kind of the fundamental idea that the last shall be first, the idea that there is value in being the persecuted rather than the persecutor. But fascism did. Fascism 
glorified the pre-Christian world and it glorified the idea of a world that had moved on beyond Christianity. And it targeted the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. So, it, you know, the two obvious ones, I guess, would be it targeted the idea that all human beings are created equally in the image of God, that there is no Jew or Greek. And it targeted the idea that there was value in being weak, that there was value in being the crucified rather than the crucifier. I mean, it absolutely despised that as well. And I think the, the measure of how Christian our values are is that the Nazis have been enshrined as kind of the embodiments of evil to the degree that perhaps that's why we don't need, as a culture, the Christian mythology anymore, because we have the Nazi mythology. Hitler is a much more terrifying figure for people than Satan. Auschwitz is more terrifying, perhaps, than hell. The Nazis are more terrifying than demons. But we enshrine Hitler as the embodiment of evil for fundamentally Christian reasons still. So I think to that extent, the values remain. They remain as strong as they've always done. I think what is different is that for the first time, Christian values are being expressed as a kind of vibe, as I said earlier. And therefore, they're no longer anchored to the mooring of biblical stories or Christian theology or the habit of going to church. And therefore, they are taking on increasingly strange and novel forms. And it's as though people with deeply held Christian sensibilities are looking for new ways to express and vent those sensibilities. You talk about the way in which the the moorings are kind of being moved away from that perhaps the Christian mythology is not known or embraced anymore. I'm interviewing here from Cranmer Hall where we train people for Christian ministry, Tom, and, and a number of our listeners to the podcast will be people in, in ministry of whatever form or another. And therefore, I'm interested in the question, does an appreciation of the ongoing significance of Christian values in the way that you've articulated keep alive the possibility that faith might be something that the West moves back to, or at least people in the West? I'm here in the Northeast. Tom, I know you've got a home in the Northeast now as well. This is deeply kind of historically Christian region. Does understanding the legacy of that region, (laughs) the story of that region as a place of rich Christian history, make that bridge back to faith something that might be crossed? Well, I I, I think if you have a sensibility that is moved by a sense of the deep past, then definitely. (laughs) But equally, there is a a vital part of the Christian story is the sense of, of the spirit coming down in a great rush of fire and your past being dissolved. And in a sense, the past can kind of be a danger. I mean, that that was kind of one of the great impulses for the Reformation, the sense that Christian history had taken a wrong turn. And the very idea that the word progressive is seen as a positive is a reflection of that kind of Christian idea that the ways of the past are things to be left behind. So I think that, that again, as with so much about Christianity, there, there are ambivalences and paradoxes there. I do think that perhaps one of the things that will prompt people in the West to question the assumption that so many of us have that our values are somehow universal. You know, people will say, I don't need a God to tell me how to be a good person. And the assumption there is that our idea of what a good person is, is somehow absolute and inherent rather than being culturally contingent, which it clearly is, because people's ideas of what a good person is, or the very notion that being a good person matters, is something that has changed and evolved over the course of time and and is different from different parts of the world to different parts of the world. We in the West have been able to kind of rely on that sense of complacency because our cultures have been so globally hegemonic for the past two centuries. We haven't really had to deal with the fact that there are other ways of understanding how humans should live. But as Western economic and military power retreats, so its cultural power will retreat. 
And so it will become increasingly evident that all kinds of things that we have taken for granted as being just the way things are, aren't at all. And I think that that will require us to ask the question, well, why do we think the way that we do? And that will require us to recognise that in all kinds, you know, you mentioned human rights. I mean, the notion of human rights derives from canon lawyers in 12th century Italy, in turn, meditating on the implications of the Gospels, that these are things that are theologically rooted and therefore require a leap of faith to believe in, and that an awful lot of our values are coded in narratives and stories that come from the Bible and come from the history of Christianity, and perhaps have to be coded in those stories to make sense. Now, it seems to me that this is somewhere where the church has really let people down, because people are coming from Church of England or Catholic schools, largely, it seems to me, ignorant of biblical stories, to a degree that is pretty unprecedented. You have large numbers of people who simply don't know the story of the Good Samaritan or even the crucifixion or the story of Exodus. And these stories basically are how Christianity has been coded for centuries and centuries and centuries. These are the most influential stories that have ever been told. And if the church is in its schools, is allowing its students to leave school without knowing these stories, I think it is letting, well, <laughs> It's it's letting the students down. It's letting it's letting it's letting God down, and it's letting themselves down. I think. And if I had one prescription for what the church could do to revitalise Christianity, it would be to make sure that people know these biblical stories. You mentioned earlier, Tom, your, your own journey of understanding, you know, admiring Pontius Pilate to suddenly kind of doing quite a significant 180. It wasn't a sudden, it was a gradual, gradual process, a weathering. <laughs> oh, and you've talked about the sort of, the, I think you used the phrase, the horror that some of your friends had felt as, as you articulate this narrative that we've been exploring today. One of the questions I always ask in this podcast is, how has this theological exploration landed with you? Where's this taken you in your own journey of faith and life and reflection? I wrote Dominion basically to stress test the feeling I had that I was in almost all my fundamentals Christian, that my values and beliefs didn't come from the Enlightenment, that they weren't inherent, that they were culturally contingent and that the culture was Christian. And because I want to believe in the inherent dignity of every human being and I want to believe in human rights and I want to believe that the strong have a duty of care for the weak, I recognise that that now that that requires a leap of faith to a degree that I, I didn't before. And I also recognise that these stories, these beliefs make best sense, as I was saying, as part of a story. So I'm torn between thinking I might as well hang for a, a sheep as a lamb, that I might as well go full in angels and Genesis and the whole shebang. But I do have kind of enduring reservations and doubts about that. And so I guess I am, there are times where I do believe in the whole thing. There are times where I want to believe. There are times where I despise myself for wanting to believe. There are times where I simply think it's all nonsense. And it's a kind of shifting. It's like kind of twiddling a dial on a radio. You know, sometimes I get kind of beautiful music. Sometimes I get kind of clear voice. Sometimes I get static. And it, it, it changes and varies. That's a, an answer that many of us will recognise for ourselves, Tom. I read the uh, Psalms every day, as Cranmer said, that we should read the Psalms once uh, a month. And I find the range of experience of from the psalmist, not dissimilar to the twiddling of the radio that you described. Yes, so so the psalms are a kind of wonderful inspiration like that, because of course there is doubt in the Bible, you know, as there is everything in the Bible. That's right. It's part of the the faith experience. That's for myself. I find one of the encouragements in Scripture. Tom Holland, uh, we must leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. 
You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. Thank you.